riding along a damp but scenic stretch of back road along the side of Loch Awe, heading south to somewhere that has an incredibly special place in the Neolithic story of Britain and Ireland, Kilmartin Glen. It's like a it's like a Neolithic wonderland down there with stone circles and chambered cairns and art carved into the bedrock. And we've heard already about how much travelling people did in the Neolithic time in this part of the world. And Kilmartin Glen is just ideally located for people on those journeys with Arran and the Boyne Valley to the south and the Great Glen Way, Lewis and Orkney to the north. And those travellers and the people who lived around here certainly left their mark, leaving a rich treasure trove of monuments for me to discover with this week's expert, Alison Sheridan. My name is Matthew McGee and I was always fascinated by standing stones I came across, wondering who put them there, how come they're still there and what on earth were they for? Monumentality is is very much a farmer thing. Someone put these here 5,000 years ago and they're still here and that's magical. So I persuaded some experts to meet me at Scotland's most beautiful, interesting and remote Neolithic sites and got on my bike to go and talk to them. By saying, I can make the sun come back and the days get longer again. Let's just build this monument and I'll show you. And they showed me how much we can learn about the sophisticated, connected, artistic lives of the very first people to give up hunting and gathering and settle down as farmers. Describe what the culture was that this was a part of. No. (laughs) This is my journey, and these are the stories I heard. Welcome to Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. In this programme, we'll mostly be talking about art and death. We'll take a whistle-stop tour around just some of the Neolithic wonders of Kilmartin Glen, We'll try valiantly to see a rock art carving that shook the world of Neolithic Britain to its core a couple of years ago. And we'll try to decode the ancient spiral designs that pop up on tombs and monuments all over Britain and Ireland. So I'm at Templewood, which is, well, it looks like a little orchard, although the trees obviously were non-Neolithic trees, uh, beside a tiny little road where there are two monuments... Little to be seen at one of them. It's just a, a, a ring of boulders with uh, one stone fragment in the middle. And that's Templewood North. It used to be a stone circle. Um, and then Templewood South, which is just about 30 metres south of that, where there are still about a dozen stones standing. And again, with these um, boulders all around that were added. We're on a big flat plain of Kilmartin Glen, which like a lot of these sites, is kind of slightly amphitheatery. There are there are um, hills all around, so we're in a big plain surrounded by hills. And this is part of one of the richest areas for, for Neolithic material um, anywhere in Britain and Ireland. I'm Alison Sheridan, and I'm an archaeologist, and I worked at National Museum Scotland for 32 and a half years. So, Alison, what are we looking at? 
Well, we're now we're standing in front of Templewood North, which is it has a complex history. It's one of two stone circles that had stood here, but it started its life as a timber circle. Yeah, probably around 3000 or 2900 BC. And then the timber circle was replaced by a stone circle, which at a later stage, probably around 2200 BC, got dismantled and the stones were used elsewhere. Um, and then just over there, that's another monument that started its life as a freestanding stone circle. Again, probably about 3000 or 2900 BC. Clearly what they were doing was creating a sacred space that would be an arena for the various ceremonies. We have no idea what they would have done you know, were they sacrificing animals? Nobody knows. And there is no way of telling. And the excavations, what the excavation showed us was the very, very complicated life history of this monument. But, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're doing ceremonies that involve, I don't know, libations of liquid, well, you're not, you're not going to get that. You could try sedimentary DNA, but it's not going to show you, you know. It's anyway. a remain a mystery. Yes. And I like that. It's good. I mean, it, it, wouldn't it be boring if we knew absolutely everything about prehistory? No, you don't become an archaeologist to have an exact record of everything. Nah. But it's like forensics. You know, it's great. You try... I mean, what I try and do is to create a narrative that gives you the best fit with the evidence that we have. And the great thing is that there's osteological work and there's DNA work. There's all these new scientific techniques, uh, new and old scientific techniques, that are all the time enriching our information base. So elsewhere, not here because the human remains um, survival is very poor in Kilmartin Glen because of the acidic groundwater, but elsewhere in prehistoric Britain, my goodness me, our whole understanding of what was going on is being revolutionised by the application of ancient DNA and isotopic analysis that tells us that yes indeed people were moving quite substantial amounts uh, in prehistory. And every time this happens, we have to make up new stories. It's very exciting. Yes, yes. And we can refine and nuance our stories. And I think that's great. This part of the world was an absolute hive of ceremonial activity for thousands of years. So it's inevitable that later people were a bit light-fingered when it came to sourcing materials for new monuments and kissed graves. A kissed or chest is a stone box shaped grave. Alison is keen to keep track of where the stones from Templewood North ended up. Spoiler alert, she doesn't think they went very far. I can't remember offhand how many there were, like 12 or 13 of them. And then over here, there is the surviving stump of one of the stones. And you can see that they're quite, quite slim. Yeah, quite wide and quite slim. And if you bear that in mind, and bear in mind that it would have been much taller, um, then you can measure the size of stones that were used in early Bronze Age kist graves and see, well, actually, it's very, very likely that the missing stones, some of them were used to build kists around 2200 BC. Okay. So 800 years later, they dismantled the stone circle because it was sacred and it was, it was imbued with the power of the ancestors. And so what a cheeky thing to do, to say, I am so important that my grave is going to incorporate an ancient monument. Yeah. And, and that's something we see as, elsewhere and we'll see when uh, we come later in the series to talk about uh, Karen Papple. 
exactly. so something other people did that's as well. exactly it yes yeah 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 this this appropriation of ancient sacred monuments and you can see a recurring pattern of people doing that here in Kilmartin Glen so that Actually, in front of us, you can see a standing stone that was probably erected about 1300 BC. What they've done there is that we're in, we're in the heart of the densest concentration of Neolithic rock art anywhere in Britain. And, what they would, and, and a lot of this rock art was on living stretches of bedrock. But they prized up that bedrock in the early Bronze Age, in the Middle Bronze Age, and they used it for their monuments. Yeah? So they would take ancient rock, rock with sacred, ancient sacred motifs, and then they would use it for their own monuments. This rock art is part of what makes Kilmartin Glen so special, and I hope to return to look at it in much more detail. But even just confining ourselves to what's visible on the stones used in monuments gives us an incredible glimpse into the imaginative and creative life of our early ancestors. Alison and I bend right down to peer hard at one of the stones in Templewood South. If we move to Templewood South, there is an amazing spiral design on one of the stones here. And spiral designs are very, very rare on rock art. As it happens, there's a spiral design at Achnebrek, uh, just further along to the, in the south end of the glen. But here, this spiral which is hard to see in, in this daylight now, in this particular light. If it, the best time to see it is with raking light, you know, like as the sun is going down. And actually on midwinter solstice, that's the very best time to see it. But it's here. And with the eye of faith, you can just about make it out. It's low here. And then it extends here. It goes around the corner of the stone. There you go. You can just just okay. about yeah, make yeah. it out yeah and then, I, would, I would certainly never ever have seen it nope. without you pointing at it okay and what's so interesting is that the it, it's lower here okay and this is all to do with the history of this monument when this stone circle was constructed about 3000 or 2900 bc it was inspired by the stones of Stones in orkney in orkney they were using the spiral design which they had adopted from Ireland. Yeah? So if you go to the Boyne Valley um, on the east coast of Ireland, north of Dublin, um, there's massive passage tombs of Newgrange, Nowth and Douth. And you'll find there that the spiral is a very dominant motif. And people have speculated as to what the spiral significance is. The thing that makes most sense to me is if you observe where the sun rises and sets on the horizon over the course of a year, and you imagine that it's, there we go, it's, it's over the, in the sky, and then, oh, well, it goes under the ground, and then comes up again. It describes a spiral, yeah? Mm -hmm. And over the course of the year, the smallest, smallest spiral is at midwinter. The biggest spiral is in the summer. And because you have continuous time, very often you get not one but two spirals, yeah? So you get the horned spiral, which might express the idea of eternity, this unceasing movement of the sun. And so this is their conception of time. It's a cyclical thing. It's, it's you know, so we, we, you know, we are obsessed. We've got our wrist, wrist watches. We, need, we, we like hours. We like minutes and seconds. For farming communities, what was really important is on the shortest day of the year, 
you have to make sure that the days are going to get longer so that your crops can grow because the crops need sunlight to, to grow. And therefore you are going to have lots of ceremonies to make sure that the days do get longer. Yeah? And, um, and so having ceremonies here on the shortest day of the year makes a lot of sense. I can't tell you how it feels to be looking at and touching art that was made back at the very dawn of settled society. It's very moving. But it's not just beautiful and interesting, it's informative as well. Because art is like a trace of the culture that produced it. And by reading the art, we can understand so much about who these people were, how they lived and who they communicated with. Kilmartin Glen is a meeting point of three linked but competing styles. And that tells us lots about the waxing and waning of power and influence in Britain and Ireland in the Neolithic period. We're in the heart of the densest concentration of Neolithic rock art anywhere in Britain. What does the existence of that art and the fact that it exists all down the Atlantic coast of Europe tell us about the society that was here at the time? It tells us that people were fantastically sophisticated, they were well-travelled and they were good navigators. So there must have been people sailing southwards from Scotland. We, we know for sure that in, in Orkney, they sailed down to the Boyne Valley. They probably almost, they certainly sailed to continental Europe because they brought back the Orkney Vole, you know, whose DNA is, is unique and, and it can only have come from the continent. So people were undertaking long distance sea journeys around 3000 BC. And it was all to do with their power structure. Yeah, so if only a few people would be able, would have the wherewithal to undertake these long journeys, yeah? Um, yeah, because most people would be busy farming, you know, staying alive. But you have an elite, so society was not equal at that time. And, it's, it's, it's the, and the elite would indulge in what, what um, anthropologist Mary Helms has called cosmological acquisition, which is, it's like in Homeric, in the, the Odyssey, where Odysseus goes long distances and he has all these adventures and he brings back his exotic ideas and, and amazing things. That's exactly what the elite were doing. And they were basing their authority on the fact that they had this arcane knowledge. They had these you know, exotic artifacts and things and these great ideas, which is how Mace Howe came to be built in Orkney. Mace Howe is a kind of a, it was directly inspired by Newgrange. Yeah? Just as here, Temple Wood, these stone circles were inspired by the stones of Stenness. And were people just remembering the shapes and patterns or were they bringing back pottery that had it on it? How, how did the idea actually travel? Yes, the, 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 the idea of the designs is very, very, very interesting. In various areas in Britain, there are little bits of stone that have got designs with Orcadian groovedware designs on. So it might be a, a lozenge with a the saltar design within that lozenge. That is very distinct. So what happened was that in, in Orkney, they were inspired by Irish passage tomb art, but they adopted and adapted it. And they developed their own style of art. We call it art, but I mean, it's not art like painting on a, on a you know, it was sacred art. And indeed, the horned spiral is an Orcadian take on the Irish passage tomb spiral. Okay, so you tend not to get horn spirals in the Boyne Valley in Ireland, but you do get it in, in Orkney. And there's a horn spiral at Achnebrek, you know, at the southern end of Kilmartin Glen. And work by Aaron Watson has shown that that is most clearly visible again as the sun is setting on midwinter solstice. Powerful stuff. Wow. Powerful so, so, so stuff. It's like, um, it's like an insulation, like situationist art. It only resp Absolutely. it responds to its environment. 
Absolutely. That's very modern. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, 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 it is mind-blowing. It really is. There are three puzzlingly interlinked styles of rock art here. One is the direct influence of Newgrange and other Irish passage tombs in the Boyne Valley. That's where the spiral at Templewood South comes from. Then there's the indirect Irish influence. Irish designs travel to Orkney, where that rich, influential society, possibly centred on the Nessa Brodger, passed it through an Orcadian filter. And that's where the horned spiral at Achnabreck, just down the way in Kilmartin Glen, comes from. Then there was the Atlantic rock art that gave us the cup and ring marks that are in the bedrock all around here. And it appears across an astonishingly wide area. The question of where Atlantic rock art originated is a, is a $64,000 question. So you get a lot of it here. Um, you get it in other parts of Britain as well. Um, very little in Wales, very little in Brittany. Very, very, very little Atlantic rock art in Orkney. But a lot in Galicia and quite a lot in Ireland as well. Um, it's impossible to point to one place and say, OK, well, it clearly originated there. All you can say is that... Hmm. That its its wide distribution tells us that people were in contact with each other over very long distances by sea. The distribution of Atlantic rock art is far wider than the distribution of Irish passage tomb spiral designs, for example. So there was clearly something going on. So people were going up and down the Atlantic facade. We are absolutely fascinated by the question of what Neolithic people did with their dead, probably because the evidence that it was important to them is staring us right in the face. The surviving cairns that were such huge drains on resources were built so well that they're still here 5,000 years later. Just about 200 metres north of Templewood, just coming along the path off that wee road to Nether Largy South Cairn which is, well, it looks from here like just a pile of stones, but I'm, I'm sure it's much more than that. Well, let's, let's start at the start, because we're not looking at a lot of cairns in the series. What is a cairn? A cairn is a heap of stones. A chambered cairn is a heap of stones with a stone chamber inside it. And so this is an early Neolithic chambered cairn. It was excavated over three days in 1864 by Canon William Greenwell, who is famous in fishing circles for his Greenwell's glory flies. Uh, but he's very famous in archaeological circles for having <laughs> done a lot of excavations of incredibly important sites in a very short time. And we, uh, you can three, kind of three days doesn't yes. sound <laughs> it's, it's not good. And the finds went to the British Museum. So a cairn is a pile of stones, and a chambered cairn is a pile of stones with a room in it. To a greater degree than stone circles, they exist in quite distinct styles based both on the geographic origins of the people who made them and on when they were built or altered. This can tell us so much about where people came from and where they eventually settled and about which cultures were influencing which. Uh, it's of a particular type called a Clyde cairn, which is it's a regional type of chambered cairn 
that you get in southwest Scotland and it's very, very similar to what you find in Ireland, the court tombs of Ireland. The origin of this particular style of monument goes back to the early farmers who originated in northern France, who came to Britain, including Scotland, uh, just shortly after 4000 BC, and they built timber monuments. Yeah? And so Clyde Cairns are actually a translation into stone of a timber monument format. We climb up the cairn and then down through a hole and into the chamber. So we are down inside the cairn, which is it's basically a corridor made of lots of stones piled kind of horizontally on top of each other with a big flat stone at the far end opposite to where the entrance is and yeah stones like a, a stone roof big flat slabs creating a roof and it's quite it's quite big you could probably fit 30 people in here you could do absolutely yeah i mean it's very very nicely built so it's this, this combination of large slabs and then dry stone walling um, in in between, and it's it, you know it's it's tall enough for us to stand up, which is brilliant. Yeah. So, um, who were the people building all this stuff in Kilmartin Glen? These were early farming communities. I mean, the fascinating thing about Argyll, the west of Scotland, is that you can see two different strands of Neolithization. So you can see people. Some people came up from the Morbihan area of Brittany, southern Brittany, and they brought with them a different tradition of funerary monument, which which involved closed megalithic chambers and simple passage tombs. So different design from this. So that's the Breton strand that came up the Atlantic facade of Britain. Yeah, and you can see it. There's one possible example in, in, in Cornwall. There are a few in southwest and northwest Wales. You can see these simple things all around the northern coast of Ireland. However, there's a different strand of Neolithic. Oh, that, that, that probably occurred around 4000 BC. A different group of incomers came in from Nord-Pas-de-Calais, which is the northernmost part of France. Um, they will have got to southeast England by 4200 BC. We know, we know that from radiocarbon dates. They certainly got to Scotland um, by about just, under, just after 4000 BC. And then they would spread across Scotland. Yeah? And in this particular area, you can see a mixing between these two different strands of Neolithic. I mean, it's so, so interesting. Um, and also, as it happens, in the, the, the people also burying their dead in caves around Oban. And in some of those caves, there's DNA evidence that these farmers were interbreeding with the local Mesolithic population, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. And it's, it's, it's the, I think it's the, well, it's not the only place in Britain now because there's more evidence coming through, but it's the first place in Britain where people have been able to say that on the basis of DNA. But here you get an interplay between the Breton and the North French uh, strands of Neolithization. Chambered cairns have given us probably the most beautiful, accomplished, impressive examples of stonework from the Neolithic period. Newgrange in the Boyne Valley, which I haven't seen yet, and Mays Howe in Orkney, which I have, are arguably the finest buildings of Neolithic Britain and Ireland. But these were functional structures as well as decorative. They were houses of the dead and provide fascinating but inconclusive glimpses into the spiritual life of these people. Because so little bone survived, it is impossible to say whether everybody in the early Neolithic community got buried here or whether it was only a few people 
or it could be that everybody got buried here but then their remains got taken out as new people came in. There's all of these unknowns that we have to deal with. Or, or even what burial was, because weren't some bodies kind of left out in the elements to, ah, to dry well that, out? Now, that is, that's a hoary old chestnut, this idea about... OK, technical talk break. As you know, I interrupt sometimes to explain language that I had to go and look up to save you the bother. So we're talking here about a theory that one of the ways Neolithic people dealt with their dead was to leave the bodies in the open, and then when all the flesh had rotted away, take the bones and deposit them in tombs the excarnation that Alison has mentioned. It was bolstered by our modern puzzlement that bones would often be mixed with those of other people and gathered together by type rather than by person. So you'd get shin bones together or femurs together rather than all of one person's bones together. So back to Alison. This idea about excarnation before the bones went in, that was largely based on the work of Chesterman, who was an osteologist who was very active in the 1960s to early 80s. But where osteologists have gone and looked at the assemblages that he'd studied uh, in Quantaness in Orkney and at Eisbister, they're saying actually the evidence that he put forward for excarnation doesn't hold water. So it seems more likely that intact corpses went inside here and then as they rotted within the tombs then when you're adding new corpses you might rearrange the bones because by that stage they but would have been I think you know, the honest truth is we do not know what people were doing with human remains but we know it was clearly extremely important they've invested yes. an awful lot of resource yes in creating these things these that lasted 5000 years that's right exactly you know th- these are where the dead dwell where the the, houses for the ancestors yeah and these would also be very prominent monuments in the landscape so you would you could come here and you could give your offerings to the dead to your ancestors and you could ask them to protect you and bring you good luck and bring you good weather and everything like that and clearly this monument had resonances much centuries later because they took the trouble to um appropriate this ancient monument when they remade it into an early Bronze Age high-status grave. We've talked already in other programmes about the possibility of stone bias, of paying attention to stone monuments just because we can still see them and discounting other kinds of structures. A cursus is a kind of monument made out of the ground itself, as patterns of ditches and platforms are dug, sometimes stretching for miles and miles. Enormous timber posts often feature in them, and there was a big Cursus monument here, and it sounds incredible. So there is a Cursus monument up at Upalagi that was being has been quarried away effectively because there's a big gravel quarry that has been on the go for the last what at least thirty years or so. But we know from aerial photography and from partial excavation that there would have been hundreds, hundreds of huge oak posts that were erected stands above the glen. So if you're standing up there on on this. Uh, platform you can look right down the glen so again you get this amazing archaeoastronomical orientation they they then set fire to this cursus monument and that was all part of the plan and we think that that was a way of of, again of honoring the ancestors but also bringing together the community from far and wide 
you know, in the, everybody who lived in the community would get together to fell the trees, erect the posts, have their ceremonies, burn the things down in the most amazing... If you imagine this happening at night time, this conflagration, it, t it takes a lot to burn down a massive post. So this, this didn't happen by accident. So people would have had to get kindling wood and set it against each one of these posts, set them alight. And so, you know, if you're, if you're creating a timber cursus monument, that represents a kind of tribal level. That's several hundred people getting together. And by doing that, by building a communal monument, it kind of, it cements the links between people living in different communities. When I say that this is like a Neolithic funfair, I'm really not joking. We visited another chambered cairn, some more standing stones, and a later cairn that incorporated Neolithic rock art, while Alison got out her IKEA measuring tape to examine all the big covering stones or capstones on the kists to identify which ones she thinks are stones robbed by Bronze Age people from Templewood North. I just can't bring you all without using up hours of your time, but we did go on something of a deer hunt, after an amazing discovery just in the last couple of years by a visitor to Kilmartin Glen. Somebody discovered um, a stone that had designs of deer on it. So normally with rock art, it's cup and rings and sometimes you get gutters and all sorts of things like that. Is kind that of abstract? Basically geometric design. But to have animal imagery, and that's, that's the only convincing example that we've got from Britain of Neolithic rock art that's got deer on. You could lose those deer in Galicia. They're exactly the same design as the deer designs that you have there. It was a visitor who happened to kind of climb into the kist and look up and he spotted these deer and you think, wow, that's amazing. So who knows what else is, is lurking in this landscape, ready, you know, waiting to be discovered. So we've come a little further down the glen to that spot. Just a guy out having a look. Not many years ago found these amazing, unique deer carvings. I'm going in head first. Yeah, so it's I'm lying underneath this big slab that's... Uh, and there's about half a metre of space underneath it. And this is where the deer is, though. Mm, I'm not are. sure I can... Deer are. Oh. I'm not sure I can see them. Crikey. So the person who discovered them had real eagle eyes. Oh. Because again, as with so much rock art, it depends critically on the lighting. So the, the guy who found it must have just come at a time when they showed. But right now... Sort of midday, they're darn difficult to see, I have to say. So again, it's a classic case of Neolithic rock art on a living stretch of rock that has been prized up and used on the underside of a capstone of an early Bronze Age kist. And actually in this kist they found the remains of, I think it's at least 12 people, which is really, really unusual for a kist. And tragically, they didn't keep the bones. We don't know where they are. They lost them or disposed of them or... Wait, so it wasn't, it wasn't carved to be part of the cairn? Was... No, it wasn't, no. But what was so significant is it's the underside, so it's the side that the dead person, dead people, 
if they could look up, they would look up and see it, yeah? Rather than being on the upper side. So, which suggests to us that um, these designs were significant to the early Bronze Age people, you know? If they associated them with the, with the ancestors and the gods, then it's giving divine power beaming down on the dead people who are buried here. Yeah. So, powerful stuff. If only we could see it more clearly. <laughs> We're inching closer here to some kind of sense of what this divine power was to the Neolithic people. And that's surely the thread linking the incredible variety of things that we've seen today. Stones aligned with the heavens, houses of the dead, symbols carved into the living rock. It all makes for a very powerful sense of spiritual importance in this place. So we've come... Uh, just further down into the glen where there's a setting of stones made by people in the Bronze Age but one of them, the big one in the middle um, one of those pieces of rock where art was made on it in the ground and it was lifted out of the ground by later people How would they have made these so so uh-huh. the cup and ring is just a it's like round indentations into yes. the rock Yes. Is that is that deer antler again? No, 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 this would have been stone and an experimental work by Hugo Anderson Weimark um, has shown that you could create one of these cup marks in about 30 to 45 minutes it depends obviously on the on the rock and it depends on the rock used for the hammerstone but if you've got a hard piece of quartz you could peck a design in this this is um this is going to be some kind of a schist stone i think it's 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 obviously the local bedrock yeah which would take you know take carvings wow that's quicker than i thought yeah but these would have been sacred marks and you know and why were they made uh, probably for, uh, if you imagine in inauguration ceremony, as, as somebody is passing through becoming an adult, they need to be taught the secrets of life, you know, the kind of life of the universe and everything. So you take them away from where they live, you take them to the edges of the valley, and you are creating, you are communing with the gods and with the ancestors. So by actually pecking into the living rock, you might believe that the rock itself is imbued with divine power. And by making an impression on the rock, you are making contact. So, and the, the, the pecking noise, with this experimental work, it was very interesting. You get this distinctive sound of peck, 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 peck. And, and if people were going into trances, yeah, then this kind of pecking would, would help. Mm. Yeah. And obviously at the time, they would have had access to magic mushrooms, uh, to other hallucinogenic substances. Mm. And this may well have been you know, a way to get into the world of the ancestors and gods, to have a transcendental experience. And the site of this rock art um, is, is where the art is situated, where this bedrock is important? They selected specific areas uh, and, and Richard Bradley has done a lot of work on this where he said very often they are raised above where people would have been living and, and also he has found that very often they're in areas where you could have significant uh, alignments. So at Achenabrek for example, midwinter solstice sun shines onto the rock surface and that's when you see these designs at their clearest. And I think he's, he suggested that there might be a kind of boundary between spaces for the living and, and spaces, spaces for, for the dead. dead. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, you have to, it was kind of intensely spiritual. They, they had this belief that people are not the only beings in the world and that there were divine beings as, as well. And, and you you trying to get contact with these divine beings. And, you know, for example, like by marking significant points in the celestial uh, calendar, 
you know, you are, again, communing with the gods. I feel like I've had a bit of a crash course in Neolithic spirituality. It's, it's quite overwhelming and, uh, and I feel a little bit emotionally dazzled by it all. I've actually cycled through Kilmartin Glen more than once uh, before I knew anything about it. And, and there's not as much to see that's as striking as, as other ceremonial landscapes like, like in Orkney. And everything that we saw has been interfered with in some way, quite significant ways, by, by later people. And yet the sense you get from Alison of, of what, it, what it was was being done here, whatever it was Neolithic people were doing with these monuments uh, and these houses of the dead, there's such a rich concentration of it here. It is so dense and distilled in this place where, as far as I know, people didn't live. This was just a ceremonial landscape. But the, the, the sense that this was a very, very special place and remains a very special place is, is really strong. And, OK, we didn't spot the deer, but it's still, it's still quite overwhelming. Join me next week when it's back to Orkney to see the big one, the Ring of Brodgar, the biggest stone circle in Scotland, where the ditch around it might turn out to be more interesting than the stones, and where the Neolithic people went a little bit showbiz. If you like what you've heard, please do consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts and reviewing it. It all really helps spread the word. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. <laughs>